Chapter Twenty of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty: Legend of the Three Beautiful Princesses. In old times there reigned a Moorish king in Granada, whose name was Mohammed, to which his subjects added the appellation of El Hajara, or the Left-Handed. Some say he was so called on account of his being really more expert with his sinister than his dexter hand. Others because he was prone to take everything by the wrong end, or in other words, to mar wherever he meddled. Certain it is, either through misfortune or mismanagement, he was continually in trouble. Thrice was he driven from his throne, and on one occasion barely escaped to Africa with his life in the disguise of a fisherman. Still he was as brave as he was blundering, and, though left-handed, wielded his scimitar to such purpose that he each time re-established himself upon his throne by dint of hard fighting. Instead, however, of learning wisdom from adversity, he hardened his neck and stiffened his left arm in wilfulness. The evils of a public nature which he thus brought upon himself and his kingdom may be learned by those who will delve into the Arabian annals of Granada. The present legend deals but with his domestic policy. As this Mohammed was one day riding forth with the train of his courtiers by the foot of the mountain of Elvira, he met a band of horsemen returning from a foray into the land of the Christians. They were conducting a long string of mules laden with spoil, and many captives of both sexes, among whom the monarch was struck with the appearance of a beautiful damsel, richly attired, who sat weeping on a low palfrey, and heeded not the consoling words of a duenna who rode beside her. The monarch was struck with her beauty, and on inquiring of the captain of the troop, found that she was the daughter of the Al-Qaeda of a frontier fortress that had been surprised and sacked in the course of the foray. A Mohammed claimed her as his royal share of the booty, and had her conveyed to his harem in the Alhambra. There everything was devised to soothe her melancholy, and the monarch, more and more enamoured, sought to make her his queen. The Spanish maid at first repulsed his address. He was an infidel, he was the open foe of her country, what was worse, he was stricken in years. The monarch, finding his assiduities of no avail, determined to enlist in his favour the duenna who had been captured with the lady. She was an Andalusian by birth, whose Christian name is forgotten, being mentioned in Moorish legends by no other appellation than that of the discreet Cadiga, and discreet in truth she was, as her whole history makes evident. No sooner had the Moorish king held a little private conversation with her, then she saw at once the cogency of his reasoning, and undertook his cause with her young mistress. "'Go to now,' cried she. "'What is there in all this to weep and wail about? 
is it not better to be mistress of this beautiful palace with all its gardens and fountains than to be shut up within your father's old frontier tower as to this mohammed being an infidel what is that to the purpose you marry him not his religion and if he is waxing a little old the sooner will you be a widow and mistress of yourself at any rate you are in his power and must either be a queen or a slave when in the hands of a robber it is better to sell one's merchandise for a fair price than to have it taken by main force the arguments of the discreet cadiga prevailed the spanish lady dried her tears and became the spouse of mohammed the left-handed she even conformed in appearance to the faith of her royal husband and her discreet duenna immediately became a zealous convert to the moslem doctrines it was then the latter received the arabian name of cadiga and was permitted to remain in the confidential employ of her mistress in due process of time the moorish king was made the proud and happy father of three lovely daughters all born at a birth he could have wished that they had been sons but consoled himself with the idea that three daughters at a birth were pretty well for a man somewhat stricken in years and left-handed as usual with all moslem monarchs he summoned his astrologers on this happy event they cast the nativities of the three princesses and shook their heads daughters o king said they are always precarious property but these will most need your watchfulness when they arrive at the marriageable age at that time gather them under your wing and trust them to no other guardianship mohammed the left-handed was acknowledged by his courtiers to be a wise king and was certainly so considered by himself the prediction of the astrologers caused him but little disquiet trusting to his ingenuity to guard his daughters and outwit the fates the threefold birth was the last matrimonial trophy of the monarch his queen bore him no more children and died within a few years bequeathing her infant daughters to his love and to the fidelity of the discreet cadiga many years had yet to elapse before the princesses would arrive at that period of danger the marriageable age it is good however to be cautious in time said the shrewd monarch so he determined to have them reared in the royal castle of salobrena this was a sumptuous palace encrusted as it were in a powerful moorish fortress on the summit of a hill that overlooks the mediterranean sea it was a royal retreat in which the moslem monarchs shut up such of their relations as might endanger their safety allowing them all kinds of luxuries and amusements in the midst of which they passed their lives in voluptuous indolence here the princesses remained immured from the world but surrounded by enjoyments and attended by female slaves who anticipated their wishes they had delightful gardens for their recreation filled with the rarest fruits and flowers with aromatic groves and perfumed baths 
On three sides the castle looked down upon a rich valley, enamelled with all kinds of culture, and bounded by the lofty Alpuxarra mountains ; on the other side it overlooked the broad sunny sea. In this delicious abode, in a propitious climate, and under a cloudless sky, the three princesses grew up into wondrous beauty ; but though all reared alike, they gave early tokens of diversity of character. Their names were Zayda, Zorayda, and Zorahayda, and such was the order of seniority, for there had been precisely three minutes between their births. Zayda, the eldest, was of an intrepid spirit, and took the lead of her sisters in every thing, as she had done in entering first into the world. She was curious and inquisitive, and fond of getting at the bottom of things. Zoraida had a great feeling for beauty, which was the reason, no doubt, of her delighting to regard her own image in a mirror or a fountain, and of her fondness for flowers and jewels, and other tasteful ornaments. As to Zorahida, the youngest, she was soft and timid and extremely sensitive, with a vast deal of disposable tenderness, as was evident from her number of pet flowers and pet birds and pet animals, all of which she cherished with the fondest care. Her amusements, too, were of a gentle nature, and mixed up with musing and reverie. She would sit for hours in a balcony gazing on the sparkling stars of a summer night, or on the sea when lit up by the moon, and at such times the song of a fisherman faintly heard from the beach, or the notes of an arafia or Moorish flute from some gliding bark, sufficed to elevate her feelings into ecstasy. The least uproar of the elements, however, filled her with dismay, and a clap of thunder was enough to throw her into a swoon. Years moved on serenely, and Cadiga, to whom the princesses were confided, was faithful to her trust, and attended them with unremitting care. The castle of Salobrena, as has been said, was built upon a hill on the sea-coast. One of the exterior walls straggled down the profile of the hill, until it reached a jutting rock overhanging the sea, with a narrow sandy beach at its foot, laved by the rippling billows. A small watch-tower on this rock had been fitted up as a pavilion, with latticed windows to admit the sea-breeze. Here the princesses used to pass the sultry hours of midday. The curious Zayda was one day seated at one of the windows of the pavilion, as her sisters, reclined on ottomans, were taking the siesta, or noontide slumber. Her attention had been attracted to a galley which came coasting along with measured strokes of the oar. As it drew near, she observed that it was filled with armed men. The galley anchored at the foot of the tower, a number of Moorish soldiers landed on the narrow beach, conducting several Christian prisoners. The curious Zayda awakened her sisters, and all three peeped cautiously through the close jealousies of the lattice, 
which screened them from sight. Among the prisoners were three Spanish cavaliers, richly dressed. They were in the flower of youth and of noble presence, and the lofty manner in which they carried themselves, though loaded with chains and surrounded with enemies, bespoke the grandeur of their souls. The princesses gazed with intense and breathless interest. Cooped up as they had been in this castle among female attendants, seeing nothing of the male sex but black slaves or the rude fishermen of the sea-coast, it is not to be wondered at that the appearance of three gallant cavaliers in the pride of youth and manly beauty should produce some commotion in their bosoms. Did ever nobler being tread the earth than that cavalier in crimson? cried Zayda, the eldest of the sisters. See how proudly he bears himself, as though all around him were slaves. Ah, but notice that one in green, exclaimed Zoraida. What grace, what elegance, what spirit! The gentle Zoraida said nothing, but she secretly gave preference to the cavalier in green. The princesses remained gazing until the prisoners were out of sight. Then, heaving long-drawn sighs, they turned round, looked at each other for a moment, and sat down, musing and pensive, on their ottomans. The discreet Cadiga found them in this situation. They related to her what they had seen, and even the withered heart of the duenna was warmed. "'Poor youths!' exclaimed she. "'I'll warrant their captivity makes many a fair and high-born lady's heart ache in their native land. Ah, my children, you have little idea of the life these cavaliers lead in their own country. Such prankling at tournaments, such devotion to the ladies, such courting and serenading. The curiosity of Zayda was fully aroused. She was insatiable in her inquiries, and drew from the duenna the most animated pictures of the scenes of her youthful days and native land. The beautiful Zoraida bridled up and slyly regarded herself in a mirror when the theme turned upon the charms of the Spanish ladies, while Zoraida suppressed a struggling sigh at the mention of moonlight serenades. Every day the curious Zaida renewed her inquiries, and every day the sage duenna repeated her stories, which were listened to with unmoved interest though frequent sighs, by her gentle auditors. The discreet old woman at length awakened to the mischief she might be doing. She had been accustomed to think of the princesses only as children, but they had imperceptibly ripened beneath her eye, and now bloomed before her three lovely damsels of the marriageable age. It is time, thought the duenna, to give notice to the king. Mohammed, the left-handed, was seated one morning on a divan in one of the court halls of the Alhambra, when a noble arrived from the fortress of Salobreña, with a message from the sage Cadiga, congratulating him on the anniversary of his daughter's birthday. The slave, at the same time, presented a delicate little basket, 
decorated with flowers, within which, on a couch of vine and fig leaves, lay a peach, an apricot, and a nectarine, with their bloom and down, and dewy sweetness upon them, and all in the early stage of tempting ripeness. The monarch was versed in the oriental language of fruits and flowers, and readily divined the meaning of this emblematical offering. So, said he, the critical period pointed out by the astrologers is arrived. My daughters are at a marriageable age. What is to be done? They are shut up from the eyes of men. They are under the eye of the discreet Cadiga. All very good. But still they are not under my own eye, as was prescribed by the astrologers. I must gather them under my wing and trust to no other guardianship. So saying, he ordered that a tower of the Alhambra should be prepared for their reception, and departed at the head of his guards for the fortress of Salabrena to conduct them home in person. About three years had elapsed since Mohammed had beheld his daughters, and he could scarcely credit his eyes at the wonderful change which that small space of time had made in their appearance. During the interval they had passed that wondrous boundary-line in female life which separates the crude, unformed, and thoughtless girl from the blooming, blushing, meditative woman. It is like passing from the flat, bleak, uninteresting plains of La Mancha to the voluptuous valleys and swelling hills of Andalusia. Zaida was tall and finely formed, with a lofty demeanour and a penetrating eye. She entered with a stately and decided step, and made a profound reverence to Mohammed, treating him more as her sovereign than her father. Zoraida was of the middle height, with an alluring look and swimming gait, and a sparkling beauty heightened by the assistance of the toilette. She approached her father with a smile, kissed his hand, and saluted him with several stanzas from a popular Arabian poet, with which the monarch was delighted. Zoraida was shy and timid, smaller than her sisters, and with a beauty of that tender, beseeching kind which looks for fondness and protection. She was little fitted to command, like her elder sister, or to dazzle, like the second, but was rather formed to creep to the bosom of manly affection, to nestle within it, and be content. She drew near her father with a timid and almost faltering step, and would have taken his hand to kiss, but on looking up into his face, and seeing it beaming with a paternal smile, the tenderness of her nature broke forth, and she threw herself upon his neck. Mohammed the left-handed surveyed his blooming daughters with mingled pride and perplexity, for while he exulted in their charms, he bethought himself of the prediction of the astrologers. Three daughters! Three daughters! muttered he repeatedly to himself, and all of a marriageable age. 
Here's tempting Hesperian fruit that requires a dragon watch. He prepared for his return to Granada by sending heralds before him, commanding every one to keep out of the road by which he was to pass, and that all doors and windows should be closed at the approach of the princesses. This done, he set forth, escorted by a troop of black horsemen of hideous aspect, and clad in shining armor. The princesses rode beside the king, closely veiled, on beautiful white palfreys, with velvet caparisons embroidered with gold, and sweeping the ground. The bits and stirrups were of gold, and the silken bridles adorned with pearls and precious stones. The palfreys were covered with little silver bells that made the most musical tinkling as they ambled gently along. Woe to the unlucky wight, however, who lingered in the way when he heard the tinkling of these bells. The guards were ordered to cut him down without mercy. The cavalcade was drawing near to Granada, when it overtook, on the banks of the river Hinal, a small body of Moorish soldiers with a convoy of prisoners. It was too late for the soldiers to get out of the way, so they threw themselves on their faces on the earth, ordering their captives to do the like. Among the prisoners were the three identical cavaliers whom the princesses had seen from the pavilion. They either did not understand, or were too haughty to obey the order, and remained standing and gazing upon the cavalcade as it approached. The ire of the monarch was kindled at this flagrant defiance of his orders, and he determined to punish it with his own hand. Drawing his scimitar, and pressing forward, he was about to deal a left-handed blow that would have been fatal to at least one of the gazers, when the princesses crowded round him and implored mercy for the prisoners. Even the timid Zorahayda forgot her shyness and became eloquent in their behalf. Mohammed paused with uplifted scimitar when the captain of the guard threw himself at his feet. Let not your majesty, said he, do a deed that may cause great scandal throughout the kingdom. These are three brave and noble Spanish knights who have been taken in battle, fighting like lions. They are of high birth, and may bring great ransoms. Enough, said the king. I will spare their lives, but punish their audacity. Let them be taken to the Vermilion Towers, and put to hard labor." Mohammed was making one of his usual left-handed blunders. In the tumult and agitation of this blustering scene, the veils of the three princesses had been thrown back, and the radiance of their beauty revealed. And in prolonging the parley, the king had given that beauty time to have its full effect. In those days people fell in love much more suddenly than at present, as all ancient stories make manifest. It is not a matter of wonder, therefore, that the hearts of the three cavaliers were completely captivated, especially as gratitude was added to their admiration. It is a little singular, however, though no less certain, that each of them was enraptured with a several beauty. 
As to the princesses, they were more than ever struck with the noble demeanour of the captives, and cherished in their hearts all that they had heard of their valour and noble lineage. The cavalcade resumed its march. The three princesses rode pensively along on their tinkling palfreys, now and then stealing a glance behind in search of the Christian captives, and the latter were conducted to their allotted prison in the Vermilion Towers. The residence provided for the princesses was one of the most dainty that fancy could devise. It was in a tower somewhat apart from the main palace of the Alhambra, though connected with it by the main wall that encircled the whole summit of the hill. On one side it looked into the interior of the fortress, and had at its foot a small garden filled with the rarest flowers. On the other side it overlooked a deep embowered ravine that separated the grounds of the Alhambra from those of the Henralif. The interior of the tower was divided into small fairy apartments, beautifully ornamented in the light Arabian style, surrounding a lofty hall, the vaulted roof of which rose almost to the summit of the tower. The walls and ceilings of the hall were adorned with arabesques and fretwork sparkling with gold and with brilliant penciling. In the centre of the marble pavement was an alabaster fountain set round with aromatic shrubs and flowers, and throwing up a jet of water that cooled the whole edifice and had a lulling sound. Round the hall were suspended cages of gold and silver wire containing singing birds of the finest plumage or sweetest note. The princesses, having been represented as always cheerful when in the castle of Salobreña, the king had expected to see them enraptured with the Alhambra. To his surprise, however, they began to pine, and grew green and melancholy, and dissatisfied with everything around them. The flowers yielded them no fragrance, the song of the nightingale disturbed their night's rest, and they were out of all patience with the alabaster fountain, with its eternal drop, drop and splash, splash, from morning till night and from night till morning. The king, who was somewhat of a testy, tyrannical old man, took this at first in high dudgeon, but he reflected that his daughters had arrived at an age when the female mind expands and its desires augment. They are no longer children, he said to himself. They are women grown, and require suitable objects to interest them. He put in requisition, therefore, all the dressmakers and the jewellers and the artificers in gold and silver throughout the Zacatin of Granada, and the princesses were overwhelmed with robes of silk, and of tissue, and of brocade, and cashmere sauls, and necklaces of pearls, and diamonds, and rings, and bracelets, and anklets, and all manner of precious things. All, however, was of no avail. The princesses continued pale and languid in the midst of their finery, and looked like three blighted rosebuds drooping from one stalk. The king was at his wit's end. 
He had, in general, a laudable confidence in his own judgment, and never took advice. The whims and caprices of three marriageable damsels, however, are sufficient, said he, to puzzle the shrewdest head. So, for once in his life, he called in the aid of counsel. The person to whom he applied was the experienced duenna. Cadiga, said the king, I know you to be one of the most discreet women in the whole world, as well as one of the most trustworthy. For these reasons I have always continued you about the persons of my daughters. Fathers cannot be too wary in whom they repose such confidence. I now wish you to find out the secret malady that is preying upon the princesses, and to devise some means of restoring them to health and cheerfulness. Cadiga promised implicit obedience. In fact, she knew more of the malady of the princesses than they did themselves. Shutting herself up with them, however, she endeavoured to insinuate herself into their confidence. My dear children, what is the reason you are so dismal and downcast in so beautiful a place, where you have everything that heart can wish? The princesses looked vacantly round the apartment, and sighed. What more, then, would you have? Shall I get you the wonderful parrot that talks all languages, and is the delight of Granada? Odious! exclaimed the princess Zayda, a horrid, screaming bird that chatters words without ideas. One must be without brains to tolerate such a pest. Mm, shall I send for a monkey from the rock of Gibraltar to divert you with his antics? A monkey? Fah! cried Zoraida, the detestable mimic of man. I hate the nauseous animal. What say you to the famous black singer Cassim from the royal harem in Morocco? They say he has a voice as fine as a woman's. I am terrified at the sight of these black slaves, said the delicate Zorahydra. Besides, I have lost all relish for music. Ah, my child, you would not say so, replied the old woman slyly. Had you heard the music I heard last evening from the three Spanish cavaliers whom we met on our journey? Ah, but bless me, children, what is the matter that you blush so and are in such a flutter? Nothing, nothing, good mother. Pray proceed. Well, as I was passing by the Vermilion Towers last evening, I saw the three cavaliers resting after their day's labor. One was playing on the guitar so gracefully, and the other sang by turns, and they did it in such style that the very guards seemed like statues or men enchanted. Allah forgive me, I could not help being moved at hearing the songs of my native country. And then to see three such noble and handsome youths in chains and slavery. Here the kind-hearted old woman could not restrain her tears. Um, perhaps, mother, you could uh, manage to procure us a sight of these cavaliers, said Zayda. 
"I think," said Zorayda, "a little music would be quite reviving." The timid Zorahayda said nothing, but threw her arms round the neck of Cadiga. " Mercy on me !" exclaimed the discreet old woman, " what are you talking of, my children ? Your father would be the death of us all, if he heard of such a thing. To be sure, these cavaliers are evidently well bred and high minded youths, but what of that ? They are the enemies of our faith, and you must not even think of them but with abhorrence. There is an admirable intrepidity in the female will, particularly about the marriageable age, which is not to be deterred by dangers and prohibitions. The princesses hung round their old duenna, and coaxed, and entreated, and declared that a refusal would break their hearts. What could she do ? She was certainly the most discreet old woman in the whole world, and one of the most faithful servants to the king ; but was she to see three beautiful princesses break their hearts for the mere tinkling of a guitar ? Besides, though she had been so long among the Moors, and changed her faith in imitation of her mistress, like a trusty follower, yet she was a Spaniard born, and had the lingerings of Christianity in her heart. So she set about to contrive how the wishes of the princesses might be gratified. The Christian captives confined in the Vermilion Towers were under the charge of a big-whiskered, broad-shouldered renegado named Hussein Baba, who was reported to have a most itching palm. She went to him privately, and slipping a broad piece of gold into his hand, Hussein Baba said she, my mistresses, the three princesses, who are shut up in the tower, and in sad want of amusement, have heard of the musical talents of the three Spanish cavaliers, and are desirous of hearing a specimen of their skill. I am sure you are too kind-hearted to refuse them so innocent a gratification. What? and to have my head set grinning over the gate of my own tower, for that would be the reward if the king should discover it. No danger of any thing of the kind. The affair may be managed so that the whim of the princesses may be gratified and their father be never the wiser. You know the deep ravine outside of the walls that passes immediately below the tower? Put the three Christians to work there, and at the intervals of their labor let them play and sing as if for their own recreation. In this way the princesses will be able to hear them from the windows of the tower, and you may be sure of their paying well for your compliance. As the good old woman concluded her harangue, she kindly pressed the rough hand of the renegado and left within it another piece of gold. Her eloquence was irresistible. The very next day the three cavaliers were put to work in the ravine. During the noontide heat, when their fellow laborers were sleeping in the shade, and the guard nodded drowsily at his post, they seated themselves among the herbage at the foot of the tower, and sang a Spanish rondelay to the accompaniment 
of the guitar. The glen was deep, the tower was high, but their voices rose distinctly in the stillness of the summer noon. The princesses listened from their balcony. They had been taught the Spanish language by their duenna, and were moved by the tenderness of the song. The discreet Cadiga, on the contrary, was terribly shocked. "'Allah preserve us!' cried she. "'They are singing a love ditty addressed to yourselves. Did ever mortal hear of such audacity? I will run to the slave-master and have them soundly bastinadoed.' "'What? Bastinado such gallant cavaliers, and for singing so charmingly?' The three beautiful princesses were filled with horror at the idea. With all her virtuous indignation, the good old woman was of a placable nature, and easily appeased. Beside, the music seemed to have a beneficial effect upon her young mistresses. A rosy bloom had already come to their cheeks, and their eyes began to sparkle. She made no further objection, therefore, to the amorous ditty of the cavaliers. When it was finished, the princesses remained silent for a time. At length Zoraida took up a lute, and with a sweet, though faint and trembling voice, warbled a little Arabian air, the burden of which was, The rose is concealed among her leaves, but she listens with delight to the song of the nightingale. From this time forward the cavaliers worked almost daily in the ravine. The considerate Hussein Baba became more and more indulgent, and daily more prone to sleep at his post. For some time a vague intercourse was kept up by popular songs and romances, which in some measure responded to each other and breathed the feelings of the parties. By degrees the princesses showed themselves at the balcony when they could do so without being perceived by the guards. They conversed with the cavaliers also by means of flowers, with the symbolical language of which they were mutually acquainted. The difficulties of their intercourse added to its charms, and strengthened the passion they had so singularly conceived. For love delights to struggle with difficulties, and thrives the most hardily on the scantiest soil. The change affected in the looks and spirits of the princesses by this secret intercourse surprised and gratified the left-handed king, but no one was more elated than the discreet Cadiga, who considered it all owing to her able management. At length there was an interruption in this telegraphic correspondence, for several days the cavaliers ceased to make their appearance in the glen. The three beautiful princesses looked out from the tower in vain. In vain they stretched their swan-like necks from the balcony. In vain they sang like captive nightingales in their cage. Nothing was to be seen of their Christian lovers. Not a note responded from the groves. The discreet Cadiga sallied forth in quest of intelligence, and soon returned with a face full of trouble. "'Ah, my children!' cried she. "'I saw what all this would come to, but you would have your way. 
you may now hang up your lutes on the willows. The Spanish cavaliers are ransomed by their families. They are down in Granada, and preparing to return to their native country. The three beautiful princesses were in despair at the tidings. The fair Zayda was indignant at the slight put upon them in being thus deserted without a parting word. Zoraida wrung her hands and cried, and looked in the glass, and wiped away her tears, and cried afresh. The gentle Zoraida leaned over the balcony and wept in silence, and her tears fell drop by drop among the flowers of the bank where the faithless cavaliers had so often been seated. The discreet Cadiga did all in her power to soothe their sorrow. "'Take comfort, my children,' said she. "'This is nothing when you are used to it. This is the way of the world. Ah, when you are as old as I am, you will know how to value these men.' I'll warrant these cavaliers have their loves among the Spanish beauties of Cordova and Seville, and will soon be serenading under their balconies, and thinking no more of the Moorish beauties in the Alhambra. Take comfort, therefore, my children, and drive them from your hearts. The comforting words of the discreet Cadiga only redoubled the distress of the princesses, and for two days they continued inconsolable. On the morning of the third the good old woman entered their apartment, all ruffling with indignation. "'Who would have believed such insolence in mortal man?' exclaimed she, as soon as she could find words to express herself. "'But I am rightly served for having connived at this deception of your worthy father.' Never talk more to me of your Spanish cavaliers. Why, what has happened, good Cadiga? exclaimed the princesses in breathless anxiety. What has happened? Treason has happened. Or what is almost as bad, treason has been proposed. And to me, the faithfulest of subjects, the trustiest of duennas. Yes, my children, the Spanish cavaliers have dared to tamper with me, that I should persuade you to fly with them to Cordova and become their wives. Here the excellent old woman covered her face with her hands and gave way to a violent burst of grief and indignation. The three beautiful princesses turned pale and red and trembled and looked down, and cast shy looks at each other, but said nothing. Meantime the old woman sat rocking backward and forward in violent agitation, and now and then breaking out into exclamations. That ever I should live to be so insulted! I, the faithfulest of servants! At length the eldest princess, who had most spirit, and always took the lead, approached her, and laying her hand upon her shoulder, "'Well, mother,' said she, "'supposing we were willing to fly with these Christian cavaliers. Is um, such a thing possible?' The good old woman paused suddenly in her grief, and, looking up, "'Possible!' echoed she. 
to be sure it is possible have not the cavaliers already bribed hussein baba the renegado captain of the guard and arranged the whole plan but then to think of deceiving your father your father who has placed such confidence in me here the worthy old woman gave way to a fresh burst of grief and began again to rock backwards and forwards and to wring her hands but our father has never placed any confidence in us said the eldest princess but has trusted to bolts and bars and treated us as captives why that is true enough replied the old woman again pausing in her grief he has indeed treated you most unreasonably keeping you shut up here to waste your bloom in a moping old tower like roses left to wither in a flower-jar but then to fly from your native land and is not the land we fly to the native land of our mother where we shall live in freedom and shall we not each have a youthful husband in exchange for a severe old father why that again is all very true and your father i must confess is rather tyrannical but what then relapsing into her grief would you leave me behind to bear the brunt of his vengeance oh by no means my good cadiga cannot you fly with us very true my child and to tell the truth when i talked the matter over with hussein baba he promised to take care of me if i would accompany you in your flight but then bethink you my children are you willing to renounce the faith of your father the christian faith was the original faith of our mother said the eldest princess i am ready to embrace it and so i am sure are my sisters right again exclaimed the old woman brightening up it was the original faith of your mother and bitterly did she lament on her deathbed that she had renounced it i promised her then to take care of your souls and i am rejoiced to see that they are now in a fair way to be saved yes my children i too was born a christian and have always been a christian in my heart and am resolved to return to the faith i have talked on the subject with hussein baba who is a spaniard by birth and comes from a place not far from my native town he is equally anxious to see his own country and to be reconciled to the church and the cavaliers have promised that if we are disposed to become man and wife on returning to our native land they will provide for us handsomely in a word it appeared that this extremely discreet and provident old woman had consulted with the cavaliers and the renegado and had concerted the whole plan of escape the eldest princess immediately assented to it and her example as usual determined the conduct of her sisters it is true the youngest hesitated for she was gentle and timid of soul and there was a struggle in her bosom between filial feeling and youthful passion the latter however as usual gained the victory 
and with silent tears and stifled sighs she prepared herself for flight. The rugged hill on which the Alhambra is built was in old times perforated with subterranean passages, cut through the rock, and leading from the fortress to various parts of the city, and to distant sally-ports on the banks of the Daro and the Hinil. They had been constructed at different times by the Moorish kings as means of escape from sudden insurrection, or of secretly issuing forth on private enterprises. Many of them are now entirely lost, while others remain partly choked up with rubbish, and partly walled up, monuments of the jealous precautions and warlike stratagems of the Moorish government. By one of these passages, Hussein Baba had undertaken to conduct the princesses to a sally-port beyond the walls of the city, where the cavaliers were to be ready with fleet steeds to bear them all over the borders. The appointed night arrived. The tower of the princesses had been locked up as usual, and the Alhambra was buried in deep sleep. Towards midnight the discreet Cadiga listened from a balcony of a window that looked into the garden. Hussein Baba, the renegado, was already below, and gave the appointed signal. The duenna fastened the end of a ladder of ropes to the balcony, lowered it into the garden, and descended. The two eldest princesses followed her with beating hearts, but when it came to the turn of the youngest princess, Zorahida, she hesitated and trembled. Several times she ventured a delicate little foot upon the ladder, and as often drew it back, while her poor little heart fluttered more and more the longer she delayed. She cast a wistful look back into the silken chamber. She had lived in it, to be sure, like a bird in a cage, but within it she was secure. Who could not tell what dangers might beset her should she flutter forth into the wide world? Now she bethought her of her gallant Christian lover, and her little foot was instantly upon the ladder, and anon she thought of her father, and shrunk back. But fruitless is the attempt to describe the conflict in the bosom of one so young and tender and loving but so timid and so ignorant of the world. In vain her sisters implored, the duenna scolded, and the renegado blasphemed beneath the balcony. The gentle little Moorish maid stood doubting and wavering on the verge of elopement, tempted by the sweetness of the sin, but terrified at its perils. Every moment increased the danger of discovery. A distant tramp was heard, the patrols are walking the rounds, cried the renegado. If we linger longer, we perish. Princess, descend instantly, or we leave you. Zorahida was for a moment in fearful agitation. Then, loosening the ladder of ropes, with desperate resolution, she flung it from the balcony. It is decided, cried she. Flight is now out of my power. Allah guide and bless ye, my dear sisters. The two eldest princesses were shocked at the thoughts of leaving her behind, and would fain have lingered, 
but the patrol was advancing, the renegado was furious, and they were hurried away to the subterraneous passage. They groped their way through the fearful labyrinth cut through the heart of the mountain, and succeeded in reaching, undiscovered, an iron gate that opened outside of the walls. The Spanish cavaliers were waiting to receive them, disguised as Moorish soldiers of the guard, commanded by the renegado. The lover of Zorahayda was frantic when he learned that she had refused to leave the tower. But there was no time to waste in lamentations. The two princesses were placed behind their lovers, the discreet Cadiga mounted behind the renegado, and all set off at a round pace in the direction of the pass of Lope, which leads through the mountains towards Cordova. They had not proceeded far when they heard the noise of drums and trumpets from the battlements of the Alhambra. Our flight is discovered, said the renegado. We have fleet steeds, the night is dark, and we may distance all pursuit, replied the cavaliers. They put spurs to their horses and scoured across the vega. They attained to the foot of the mountain of Elvira, which stretches like a promontory into the plain. The renegado paused and listened. As yet, said he, there is no one on our traces. We shall make good our escape to the mountains. While he spoke, a ball of fire sprang up in a light blaze on the top of the watch-tower of the Alhambra. Confusion! cried the renegado. That fire will put all the guards of the passes on the alert. Away! Away! Spur like mad! There is no time to be lost! Away they dashed. The clattering of their horses' hoofs echoed from rock to rock as they swept along the road that skirts the rocky mountain of Elvira. As they galloped on, they beheld that the ball of fire of the Alhambra was answered in every direction. Light after light blazed on the atalayas, or watch-towers, of the mountains. "'Forward! Forward!' cried the renegado, with many an oath. "'To the bridge! To the bridge! Before the alarm has reached there!' They doubled the promontory of the mountain, and arrived in sight of the famous Puente del Pinos, that crosses a rushing stream, often dyed with Christian and Moslem blood. To their confusion, the tower on the bridge blazed with lights and glittered with armed men. The renegado pulled up his steed, rose in his stirrups, and looked about him for a moment. Then, beckoning to the cavaliers, he struck off from the road, skirted the river for some distance, and dashed into its waters. The cavaliers called upon the princesses to cling to them, and did the same. They were borne for some distance down the rapid current. The surges roared around them, but the beautiful princesses clung to their Christian knights and never uttered a complaint. The cavaliers attained the opposite bank in safety and were conducted by the renegado by rude and unfrequented paths and wild barrancos through the heart of the mountains so as to avoid all the regular passes. In a word, they succeeded in reaching the ancient city of Cordova, when their restoration to their country and friends was celebrated with great rejoicings 
for they were of the noblest families. The beautiful princesses were forthwith received into the bosom of the church, and after being in all due form made regular Christians, were rendered happy lovers. In our hurry to make good the escape of the princesses across the river and up the mountains, we forgot to mention the fate of the discreet Cadiga. She had clung like a cat to Hussein Baba in the scamper across the Vega, screaming at every bound and drawing many an oath from the whiskered renegado. But when he prepared to plunge his steed into the river, her terror knew no bounds. "'Grasp me not so tightly,' cried Hussein Baba. "'Hold on by my belt, and fear nothing.' She held firmly with both hands by the leathern belt that girded the broad-backed renegado. But when he halted with the cavaliers to take breath on the mountain summit, the duenna was no longer to be seen. "'What has become of Cadiga?' cried the princesses in alarm. "'I know not,' replied the renegado. "'My belt came loose in the midst of the river, and Cadiga was swept with it down the stream. The will of Allah be done!' But it was an embroidered belt, and of great price. There was no time to waste in idle reports, yet bitterly did the princesses bewail the loss of their faithful and discreet counsellor. That excellent old woman, however, did not lose more than half of her nine lives in the stream. A fisherman who was drawing his nets some distance down the stream brought her to land, and was not a little astonished at his miraculous draught. What farther became of the discreet Cadiga the legend does not mention. Certain it is that she evinced her discretion in never venturing within the reach of Mohammed the left-handed. Almost as little is known of the conduct of that sagacious monarch when he discovered the escape of his daughters and the deceit practised upon him by the most faithful of servants. It was the only instance in which he had called in the aid of counsel, and he was never afterwards known to be guilty of a similar weakness. He took good care, however, to guard his remaining daughter, who had no disposition to elope. It is thought, indeed, that she secretly repented having remained behind. Now and then she was seen leaning on the battlements of the tower, and looking mournfully towards the mountains in the direction of Cordova, and sometimes the notes of her lute were heard accompanying plaintive ditties in which she was said to lament the loss of her sisters and her lover and to bewail her solitary life. She died young, and, according to popular rumor, was buried in a vault beneath the tower, and her untimely fate has given rise to more than one traditionary fable. End of chapter 20